Welcome to From the Front Porch, a conversational podcast about books, small business, and life in the South. Your cold mornings are filled with the heartache about the fact that although we are not at ease in this world, it is all we have, that it is ours, but that it is full of strife, so that all we can call our own is strife, but even that is better than nothing at all, isn't it? Paul Harding, Tinkers. I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia, and this week I'm joined by frequent From the Front Porch guest, Hunter McClendon, though you might know him as Shelf by Shelf on Instagram. Speaking of Instagram, don't forget to follow The Bookshelf at Bookshelf TVille. Instagram is where we post regular updates about shop happenings, including what books release each Tuesday and details about upcoming events like Word of South and Indie Bookstore Day. If you're looking for a no-cost way to support the work of our independent bookstore, following us on Instagram and liking and resharing our posts is a great way to do that. You can find us at Bookshelf TVille on Instagram. Now back to the show. Hi, Hunter. Hello. Yes. (laughs) I was just going to say, it's so funny. So like for anyone who, for whatever reason, does not subscribe to the Patreon, I'm frequently recording, we're recording episodes there for Conquer Classic. I have forgotten what it is like to be on like a normal (laughs) episode. And I was like, wow, I was like, there's so much happening because typically we just jump in. Yeah, it's way more professional (laughs) over here on the public feed. (laughs) On the Patreon feed, it's a little more freewheeling. I kind of fly by the seat of my pants. But today I had an intro and a quote. It's very professional. (laughs) I love it. It's my favorite. So Hunter, we've rebranded. These are the artists formerly known as Backlist Book Club. Instead, <laughs> did you like that? That was, I did. That was, <laughs> that was good. Um, so instead, we, as a bookshelf staff, we're really talking about what we wanted to brand certain episodes as. For example, Ashley and I called our episodes Kids Table. It was something I loved and enjoyed. I still love those episodes, but we've rebranded them because Kids Table was confusing to people and they mm-hmm. thought we were talking about Kid Lit. So <laughs> we were worried Backlist Book Club was preventing people who maybe hadn't done their homework. People who might think, oh no, a book club. I didn't do work for a book club. And so we are calling these episodes Bookmarked with Annie and Hunter. Do you approve? Oh, I love it. I mean, I I think that like that was something I used in my wedding was bookmarked bookmarked oh, the, that's the, I don't yeah our whole thing was what was book theme so oh, yeah. you know yeah adorable <laughs> so bookmarked with Annie and Hunter we are still reading for now for this year we're going to stick with Pulitzer winners we just talked off air about some of the books we're going to be reading this year but this episode is about Tinkers by Paul Harding here is what is important to note about these episodes they are designed for either people who have already read Tinkers and want to hear us wax philosophical about Tinkers or they are designed for people who have not read Tinkers and who might finish this episode and be inspired to read this Pulitzer Prize winning work. So these are not episodes. We will try to warn you of spoilers, although this particular book is really immune, I think, to spoilers. Mm-hmm. You kind of it, you kind of know what's happening. So people people on the internet think I'm really bad at spoilers. Did you know that? <laughs> what do you wait? What do you mean? People really say that I don't give enough spoiler warnings, that I just kind of tell about a book, which that could be true. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm 
I'm pretty weary of spoilers, but I, I've never felt spoiled by you. Thank you so much. So <laughs> these, we will try to always warn you if we are going to spoiler talk. I think we've done that in our back titles, yeah. uh, our back episodes of Backlist Book Club. But today's episode is going to be pretty spoiler-free because we know what's going to happen really from the moment we begin reading this book. But if you are new to these episodes, we hope you will stick around and listen to the whole thing. We love these bookish conversations. They are some of my favorite episodes. So Hunter, why did we pick Tinkers? I think because it was one of the smallest, one of the shortest, <laughs> like, Pulitzer winners that we could find. That's correct. We're already conquering classic over on Patreon, as Hunter has mentioned. So we really needed to keep things short and simple. Mm-hmm. Also, because maybe I forgot that we were recording this. And maybe, <laughs> maybe two weeks ago, Hunter was like, hey, are we doing... <laughs> an episode about a Pulitzer winner? Why, yes, we are. So we picked this. Had you read this before? I had not. I It was on my list. I actually bought his, he just had a book come out, Paul Harding, uh, I, the other, this other Eden, I believe it's called. Yes. And I got it at the bookshelf, actually, uh, recently okay. when I had friends in town, shop local. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I um, I don't work for the bookshelf. I'm just a fan. <laughs> Um, but yeah. And so I, but I've had an interest in him and actually I was very curious about this one because a lot of people, uh, had told me they didn't like it. Mm, And yeah. And when people tell me they don't like a book, I'm like, tell me more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm almost more curious about that than people who love a book. Yeah. I went into this knowing nothing. Mm -hmm. We really did kind of pick it because of the length and, I think I vaguely knew maybe that it was New England, but, mm-hmm. but that but that was really the extent of my knowledge. This won the Pulitzer back in 2010. What I did not know was the book's history. So this is fascinating. Paul Harding was a debut novelist. This mm-hmm. was his first book. He was like a rock star. Literally, a, not he's a rock star <laughs> for writing this book. He was a right. rock star. <laughs> um, he played in a band. And decided, though I will say, America loves a Cinderella story, but we forget there are other elements to Cinderella. So he was a rock star who also went to the Iowa writing school. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he he learned under Marilyn Robinson. So it's not like he just went from drumming to writing this Pulitzer Prize winning right. book. But this was his first novel. He wanted to write a book about his family, more or less, or something like a book about his family family about hard scrabble people in mm-hmm. Maine or Massachusetts. And so anyway, he wrote Tinkers and it was independently published by a small press called Bellevue Literary Press. They still print it. And independent bookstores championed this book so much that it just kind of took off in a way no one was anticipating and it got the attention of reviewers and then became a Pulitzer winner, which the myth of this book is really delightful to me. I mm-hmm. I really love it. Do you think, wait, do you think this is like the Andrea Riseborough <laughs> of the Pulitzer okay. scene? I hope that it is more deserving than Andrea Riseborough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do think. Did you watch that movie? No. I like, I saw about five minutes and I was like, oh my goodness, my mom does better than this. Skip. <laughs> We don't need this for her famous friends. Um, No, I, but I do think that 
America and maybe maybe other people outside of America also love a mythology, but I yes. feel like there is a great story behind this book. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if in all of your Pulitzer readings, because you have read a lot of award-winning books and done a lot of research on things like that, do you think the myth behind this book or the storytelling behind Tinker's elevated it and gave it more of a chance in the Pulitzer race that year? Possibly. I, you know, I think so... All these books have to be, I'd be curious to know if Paul Harding or his, because you have to pay to submit these books, mm-hmm. like every, like, uh, like, that's the thing too, by the way, like, people don't really talk about this, but every, a lot of times people get really mad. They'll be like, oh man, why wasn't that book like, you know, uh, chosen mm-hmm. for an award? Sometimes it's because the publisher didn't want to pay for it and the author didn't have the means to pay because it's a couple hundred dollars, I think, to submit. Fascinating. I didn't, this is new information to me. Yeah. And so I know at least, like, I, I believe that's how the Pulitzer works. I know that's how the National Book Award works. And, you know, it's it really, as much as we hate to think of it, it's really a very pol- political, like, uh, mm. this, much like the Oscars. Like, you you kind of do, right. you are campaigning in a way. And yeah. yes, I do think that in some ways that, that the, the narrative behind the book probably helped it some. But I also just think that this was a book that was doing things that we weren't really seeing done and still don't really see done a lot mm-hmm. because you know, well, I think that, you know, I think we'll probably talk a lot about this, but you can definitely tell that Marilyn Robinson had a hand in shaping who he is as a writer. For and, sure. and it's, and I think that because we don't really see that many writers like Marilyn Robinson, it's very exciting when we see somebody who has mm-hmm. this level of intellect in a work and this level of uh, like, cause it's, this is a book that is very, it's demanding in a very fun and enjoyable way. Mm-hmm. I think, and so I do. Th- I think that 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 part. That's the thing too. Is I also think that this is the kind of book when you're talking about the conversation around because the Pulitzer is looking for books, preferably preferably dealing with American life. And I think that this was a book that was showing something that we maybe have seen, but not in this way before, and maybe felt like I don't know. So I th- I th- yeah, I think there's a lot that was going on with this that kind of probably helped elevate it. I love your use of the word demanding because this was not necessarily a book that I immediately sat down and connected with, or in fact, I sat down with it and connected with it and then was immediately taken out of it. Like, yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about the structure. Before we do that, so this book, the this is, this is literally the blurb, which is one of the more unusual uh, blurbs or descriptions on the back of the book. An old man lies dying. As time collapses into memory, he travels deep into his past, where he's reunited with his father and relives the wonder and pain of his impoverished New England youth. At once heartbreaking and life-affirming, Tinker's is an elegic meditation on love, loss, and the fierce beauty of nature. Now look, that's a beautiful blurb. It doesn't fully tell you what this book is about. <laughs> like, like, it tells you what it's about, but it is almost as poetic as what is within the pages of the book. But essentially, we have a book that is about George Crosby. And it's really about three generations of men in the Crosby family. It's about George, who was on his deathbed. It is about his father, Howard, who he is kind of having memories of and almost hallucinations of. And then it is even about Howard's father. And so who was a, who was a minister. And so we get kind of those three generations. We get more about Howard and George than we really do um, Howard's father. But anyway, it's kind of these three generations of new England men. And, despite the fact that Marilyn Robinson wrote about a different region of the country immediately, even if my, co- even if my copy did not have an introduction or a foreword <laughs> by Marilyn Robinson, I would have immediately thought, Oh yes, 
this is familiar to me, like a man on his deathbed kind of reflecting. And so in that way, I was immediately hooked. You you are immediately introduced to George. I was curious what was going to happen to him. Mm-hmm. George Washington Crosby began to hallucinate eight days before he died. It's a great opening line. Yeah. But then we immediately begin to get excerpts from a, a pre- pretend, a fictional, but purported to be real, um, <laughs> book about clockmaking. Mm-hmm. We also get some other kind of mm, passages about various borealises. Yeah. <laughs> kind of mixed in. And so it's not this really linear story. Mm-hmm. Whereas in in Gilead, a man is on his deathbed kind of writing and reflecting to his son. It's pretty straightforward storytelling. Mm-hmm. This did not feel straightforward. And in fact, at first, part of the reason I was taken out of the story was because I was like, oh my gosh, these clock passages. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm curious what you thought about the structure and the narrative storytelling. So I think this is a book that I'm really glad I read now because... Mm-hmm. I, I've been reading a lot of, I've I've read so much more in the past decade, and especially in the past two years alone, that uh, I've read a lot of Faulkner, I've read a lot of international literature that really Mm -hmm. does a lot of interesting things with structure. And I think if I had not read those books, and I started this, I'd have been like, what is going on? I do not, I like, I would have probably hated this book, honestly, because it would have thrown me and I wouldn't have thought I... I think that especially, yeah, I do think this book definitely pulls from, I think this book is like a marriage between Faulkner and Marilyn Robinson in Mm. that it has a lot of the quieter, more nuanced, like reflective moments of Marilyn Robinson, but it has a lot of the really interesting structural play that Faulkner has and a lot of stuff that's like actually like uh, out of the US canon. Mm -hmm. But at first I was like, it took me probably about a third of the book before I really realized like, oh, I get it. Like the clock play, this is all time. This is like, that's exactly how long it took me because the book is only, so the book is fewer than 200 pages. I think, yeah. it, or it's right at 200 pages. Mm-hmm. And then it is divided up into, I, I think four chapters. Mm-hmm. So those of you who like me are maybe wary <laughs> of, of long chapters. It's okay. Gird your loins. You can do it. Sometimes literature demands more of us and that's okay. And so anyway, I, the first chapter is 80 pages mm-hmm. and I liked the first chapter. I thought, well, this is fine. Like you, I am glad I was reading it now, although I still have not been able to finish a Faulkner book. It'd be lovely to try. (laughs) The last time I tried was pre-Bookshelf Life, and I'd be curious to know if I could do better now. Okay. So I have never completed a Faulkner work, but certainly in the last several years, you and I have tackled classics together. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think I've read books that I wouldn't have been able to read back when I was 18. And so... Like you, I picked this one up and thought, oh, I am glad I'm reading this now because I'm not sure I would have been able to handle this structure previously. That being said, chapter two for me, which is really the middle of the book, and I think it might be the largest chapter, mm-hmm. that's when I fell in love. The yeah. first chapter, I thought, okay, I'm kind of getting used to the rhythm. I'm kind of getting used to this structure. It almost, we'll talk about this too, it almost reminded me of Annie Dillard a little bit in mm-hmm. terms of nature writing too. And so... I felt like I was getting my bearings. And then the second chapter is really devoted. And perhaps I liked it a lot because it did feel a little bit more straightforward storytelling. Mm -hmm. But in that case, I kind of think it's brilliant that the first section is kind of playing with time and playing with these 
I don't know, descriptions, um, these, well, these little interspersements. Did you also notice, like, there are even also, there are also several moments where he switches tenses, too. Yes, yes. And so you kind of yeah. have to... Which, which do you think? I, I kind of wondered if the switching of the tenses is, and and not to be morbid, but this is a book about death. Essentially, this is somebody mm. reflecting back on their life, and I wonder if that's because as you near the end of your life, time kind of. Um, no one can see me but you, but <laughs> but I'm pressing my two hands together. You know, time kind of like, time kind of constricts on itself. Yeah. So you know, I think that I think that this is a really um. You have, have you read Alice Monroe? No. Okay, so uh, Lauren Groff once described Alice Monroe's short stories as, you know, most every most everyone else like they 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 use time in a very linear way, but uh, mm-hmm. Alice Monroe almost uses time as layers of tissue, and mm. so it's like, and so I think, and I think in that way, this book is kind of doing the same thing where it's, and I think you're right. I think it's almost like I think what temporal whatever that that whole the, yeah, it's it's like think you're you're. I think when you're dying in a way, it's almost like you're shifting in and out of all of your time. Maybe it's like kind of, yes, yes. that's exactly, that's what I kept thinking. I was like, Oh, this is somebody who is here in the present moment, but Mm -hmm. just barely, he is just barely talking to his family. He's barely coherent, but in his mind, he is young again Mm -hmm. in his mind. He has gone back to his father. And so it all kind of feels poetic and messy and it's like he's existing in those thin places that we talk about. And so the the tense, the the verb structures really never bothered me because it felt so realistic to this kind of storytelling. Yes. The the passages from the clock book were a little harder. I remember mm-hmm. you and I once, uh, I think it was because we were conquering some classic or another, <laughs> but you talked about when a book incorporate something and like indents the paragraphs more or include something in italics, your brain almost is like, this isn't important. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Always. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so those, those clock making passages really were difficult for me, but I did want to talk about clocks and how they play a role in this book because tinkers almost comes from this idea. George is a man who in his retirement repairs clocks and he takes these, these clocks that have become defunct and he brings them back to life. And Mm -hmm. at one point he's, he's on his deathbed and his grandson, I think is in the room with him. And it was really a poignant scene to me because George is barely, barely there, really barely Mm -hmm. cognizant, but he says, it's so quiet in here. And he realizes it's because all the clocks have stopped because he's the person in the house who would wind them. And so anyway, I'm curious what you think clocks kind of symbolize, not to be all English major about it, but they are a recurring theme throughout the book, mainly for George, but also in Howard's storytelling, which which Howard's yeah. storytelling is, to me, what takes up most of chapter two, and it's, it's, the, it's the part that I fell in love with. But clocks, by the end of the book, you kind of realize, oh, this means something. I mean, I definitely think that, like, this is a, in the same way that the structure is playing with Time. It's funny because I feel I actually feel like it. You would think that oh, like like a book playing with time, clocks, but it's so much more nuanced than that. Like it, mm-hmm. it feels like it could be so over the head, but I think that like it it never it never like it never handholds the reader and says like oh, look at these clocks being an an uh, an image, you know, like a visual representation, a physical yeah. representation of what we're doing with the structure and with his mind and his like kind of like tunneling back and forth in time. Like I feel like it is those things, but it doesn't feel too obvious. In fact, I didn't even realize until I reached, oh, the end of the book, maybe when I was reading like the 
the extra stuff kind of mm-hmm. at the back of the book that the time in which George is on his deathbed is the length of time in a clock's like a clock's life before you yes. have to rewind it uh-huh. and or before you have to wind it. And I thought, well, that's brilliant. And I never would have picked up on that at all because mm-hmm. for me, the more we learn about Howard, George's mm-hmm. father, Howard has um, or had epilepsy. And so he would have seizures, but that was something kind of kept from the children, including George mm-hmm. kept from the family. And there is this really brutal scene in which George all of a sudden is aware of his father's illness. And that immediately for me didn't define George, but it like solidified him in my brain. And I thought, oh, George is a tinkerer. George plays with clocks. George fixes clocks Mm -hmm. because they are something he can fix. And Throughout the book, we just get these subtle moments. They're so quiet where we see George as a child and he's the eldest son Mm -hmm. and he's the son who has to take care of his little brother who obviously maybe has some uh, learning delays. And then he takes care of his sister with asthma and he's the caregiver in the family and he he's the fixer. And it's, I think you realize throughout the book, not only are the clocks kind of this representation of yes, time and the time that's passing and the time that George has left, but they're also representative of a man who wanted something that he could fix and that would start working again once he tinkered with it a little bit. Yeah. Also, can I just like, so I have to go back. There's a scene, it's not super early on, but it's like early enough. I think it's in the first chapter, the black tooth, Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because Howard is like a traveling salesman. Do you uh-huh. remember all I could think was in Anne of Green Gables where Anne Shirley buys <laughs> the black hair dye and she yes. turns her hair green. So, so Howard is somebody who like travels with a wagon full of things. And it, it there's this really great list. Do you know it also occasionally reminded me of Julia Tsuka? Like it occasionally, uh-huh. that kind of list format. So at one point, we uh, Paul Harding just kind of lists for us what all Howard has encountered on the road. And I wish I could find it because I thought it was so good where it's like, he's done this, this, and this. He's delivered a baby. He's And then at one point it says, he pulled a tooth. And then it goes into, besides fixing pots and selling soap, these are some of the things that Howard did at one time or another on his rounds, sometimes to earn money, mostly not. Shoot a rabid dog, deliver a baby, put out a fire, pull a rotten tooth, cut a man's hair, sell five gallons of homemade whiskey for a backwoods bootlegger bootlegger named Potts, fish a drowned child from a creek. And then he goes into detail and tells about the drowned child, Mm -hmm. tells about the man whose hair he cut, and then tells about the man with the rotten tooth. And it is so... I don't, I don't know. That writing is so good to me. We were talking off air. I think you were, you were reading to me from a short story collection and you mentioned how like compact and concise. Mm -hmm. And there are some moments in this book that are so concise. You still might have to read the sentences a couple of times. Like there were some times where I had to go back and reread, but overall they were so concise and quickly immediately gave me, I knew exactly who Howard is. Like Mm -hmm. I, he's the kind of man who will pull a man's rotten tooth. And that was so visceral. It reminded me of when we read The Road last year and uh-huh. some of those scenes that are just so brutal <laughs> and so, ob- like I don't know, so visceral. The thing is, I was reading, it's so funny, I like, I, did you read, just a question, did you read this book today or did you read it 
I read it over the last three days. Okay, let's look at that. Okay, I good. know. Look at me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, but to to be clear, by I read the first chapter uh, over the last three days, and then I read two, three, and four today. Okay. Okay. That makes <laughs> yeah. So I so I read it today. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's what we we're like. We're like <laughs> we're gonna. That is what we do. <laughs> yeah. Um. And you know what? I'm really glad I did. But it's so funny because like I read. <laughs> I did. I'm not gonna lie. I didn't get work today. It's fine. Um. <laughs> but I was reading the scene where because it's it, actually no. I think I I think I read this this that part this morning before I went to work. But I it's describing like it describes like the black tooth and it describes like the inflamed. The, uh, it's like a the way it describes the mm-hmm. the gums and everything. It is so good. Uh, and it's because it's so disgusting and um, unnerving and I, oh gosh, I've got, are you, you're going to have to find it because it's going to, I'm finding it. (laughs) Um, because it's so good. Let me see. And also there's a reference to the scarlet letter that comes back. Yes. Uh huh. I, when I read that, oh, I gasped. So it's this hermit who has Mm -hmm. a rotten tooth and Howard comes upon him and he, he can't speak. He's in such pain. The river was high after an early fast melt and loud. Voices seemed to mingle in the water as if there were a race of men who dwelled among the rapids. When Gilbert began to list and recite Virgil, Howard reached into the hermit's mouth with the pliers, grabbed the fetid tooth, and pulled with all of his strength. The tooth did not budge. Howard let go. Gilbert looked baffled for a moment, then passed out again, flat on his back, the flies neatly following him from upright to laid out. And then he keeps going. Stepping closer, Gilbert opened his mouth and Howard, squinting to get a good look, saw in that dank, ruined, purple cavern, stuck way in the back of an otherwise empty levy of gums, a single black tooth planted in a swollen and bright red throne of flesh. Is that not so good? <laughs> it's so good. I was, it's so good. I read that and I was like, I, I, it's one of those things where like, like the thing is, you know, like if you, if you ever try to write, you'll spend days and days and days like carving out a sentence sometimes because you want it to be like a, a jewel in a, in, you know, in a box, or whatever. And I read that and I was like, I had to sit the book down and I was like, it was, I was mad. I was jealous. Cause I was like, yes. this is what I want to do. Because it is maddening because that sentence. So when I read a book, like what I often am marking are passages that move me, right. Mm-hmm. Or passages that I quote at the top of these episodes or things like that, things that I want to remember. But then I'm also looking for phrases or sentences that stop me in my tracks. And what is so maddening about that sentence is it is about a one-time meeting with this random hermit (laughs) who certainly played a role in Howard's stories, but it's so minor, like Mm -hmm. blink and you miss it kind of thing. And it feels like it doesn't matter in the grand scope of Howard's life or George's life. Like it just kind of feels like this one-off. And then you think, what did Paul Harding do with this one seemingly random encounter about this rotten tooth? And then you read that sentence and you're like, how did he do it? And it, and it is infuriating because it feels like mm-hmm. it shouldn't matter. <laughs> it feels right. like a sentence that shouldn't matter. Well, and that's, you know what? It's one of those things that like, I, I know I know that sometimes we get frustrated over like prizes and stuff. And we're like, oh, like, is this like necessary? But books like this, like Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, like Swamplandia, all of these, uh, like The Road, they just, there's something, here's the thing, like, I like a lot of books, mm-hmm. but sometimes you read a book and you think, how can someone make every single line this mm-hmm. good? Yeah, it feels unfair. And yeah. and you know what? It is unfair. 
<laughs> it is yeah. unfair and that's okay it is unfair not everybody mm-hmm. can write like this that, that's just yeah. that's just the facts <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just the facts okay i think i want to talk about the three generations of men because mm-hmm. the story i think what is so interesting about this novel is definitely the story of howard which i think at some points feels the most linear mm-hmm. feels the most lin- linearly told <laughs> certainly sticks out to me personally but it's not one of those books where you're like, oh, I like George or I like Howard. Or right. really, it's a generational story. And it's seeing, we, I feel like in recent years, we, by we, maybe I mean I, I feel like I've read a lot of books about generational trauma. Yes. And about the effects of one generation on another. The book I reference all the time is The Many Daughters of Afong Moy. But so many can fall into this category because I feel like I've read a lot of this recently mm-hmm. where what do the sins and the joys of the father mean to the son and to the grandson? And there's this really great passage where George, this is, I love that in this book, it tells you like 80 hours before he died or 84 Mm -hmm. hours. So it kind of goes back in time. So we're 84 hours before he died and George is thinking, and it is some of these sections are difficult to pull out because they're, did you ever read, was it called Ducks of Newburyport? What was that book called? Oh, Ducks of Newburyport. I have not read it, but we talked about reading that at one point. I think I'm going to read it because there were there were moments in this book where there's no sentence break. Like uh-huh. you just keep reading. And yeah. so this is one of those I'll try to stop at a at a decent spot. <laughs> but basically George is kind of reflecting and he says I will remain a set of impressions, porous and open to combination with all the other vitreous squares floating about in whoever else's frames, because there is always the space left in reserve for the rest of their own time. And to my great-grandchildren, with more space than tiles, I will be no more than the smoky arrangement of a set of rumors. And to their great-grandchildren, I will be no more than a tint of some obscure color. And to their great-grandchildren, nothing they ever know about. And so what army of strangers and ghosts has shaped and colored me until back to Adam until back to when ribs were blown from molten sand into the glass bits that took up the light of this world because they were made from this world. I loved this reflection of my grandchildren will only know me as this. My great grandchildren will only know me as this. My great, great grandchildren will know me as nothing more than a rumor. Like he is being so reflective and wise, but he also says, and yet you can also trace me back to Adam. You can also, mm-hmm. like, George knows he is Howard's son. What is Howard's father's name? I can't remember. The preacher. Oh, gosh. Is he named? Why can't I remember his name? I keep referencing I George and Howard. And were we not told? I don't know if we were. I can't remember. Maybe we weren't told the minister's name. I truly, I'm so sorry. I truly don't remember it. But anyway, you can see that George on his deathbed realizes I'm Howard's. Uh-huh. And I'm and I'm also this grandfather that I didn't really know. And I'm the person who who I can't even name to you because I yeah. too, you know, my ancestors are nothing more than a rumor to me. And so I do love that reflection. So I'm curious, did you like that? I mean, I think you're like, I think you and I are similar in this way. I am drawn to stories like this where it's kind of multi-generational or where yeah. you see you see a character, but you know who they've become is based on who raised them or who who influenced them or who, you know, who their ancestors are. Yes, because I think a lot of I think the reason why I like books like this is because I think it's this is more accurate than um 
So I, I, Brandon Taylor, whenever he was, I was reading this thing where Brandon Taylor was talking about writing the book Real Life. That was a Booker finalist uh, back in like 2020. And mm-hmm. he said that someone was like, oh, like, how do you, like, you know, all the characters, they always feel like they're like, they're like so real and they're react, they, they feel like they're reacting off of each other. And he's like, yeah, because you don't just put people on a thing and then have that, you don't, you're not moving little Barbie dolls around, you know? He's right. like, you know, you, this person does something, these other people are reacting to it. They go mm-hmm. off and live live another life away from what's happening. They come back, more things have happened. Like like you like every and everything that is happening with everyone is it's all like it's all working together. And I mm-hmm. think that with generational stories, that is one of the that is the t- one of the times that I see it the most uh, clearly. How this is impacting this is impacting like mm-hmm. even it doesn't always have to be trauma either. You know, it just can be. You know, it's the way that it's the way that sometimes we brush our hair the way our moms do, or we right. It's it's these little things, and I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, it and you're right. There is certainly trauma in this book, and you can see how Howard's epilepsy goes on to Mm -hmm. affect George in big and small ways. You see how it's kind of shaped his maybe his care and his attention to detail and his desire to care for the people that he loves. But it's also seeing Howard's father, who was this kind of tortured, perhaps genius, who was writing these sermons and then, and you know, writing these kind of poetic, beautiful sermons that then started to not make sense. But then you can see how Howard became a man who loved poetry mm-hmm. and who loved nature. And you can see how George loved nature and loved poetry. And so it's not just the the trauma that gets passed down. It's also yeah. the beauty and, and the attention to the natural world. Like these are mm-hmm. things that clearly are, for lack of a better term, these are the family values that belong to the Crosby men and to the Crosby family. Mm-hmm. This is a little side note, by the way. I was just curious to see what other books were, what the two finalists were for this year. Yeah. And it was uh, Love and Infant Monkeys and In Other Rooms, Other Wonders. In Other Rooms, Other Wonders was uh, published by Norton. And Love okay. and Infant Monkeys, which Lydia Millet, which you've read, Dinosaurs. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, was Soft Skull Press. And those are two kind of smaller. Yes. So it's interesting to see that all three books are from. A Year of Smaller Presses. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I wonder... I wonder when the last time that happened. What maybe that happens more regularly than I think, but it seems unusual to me. It is, yeah. Typically, there's like one or two. Like I know with like the National Book Award, which to be fair, there are like more books to be chosen, but with mm-hmm. the National Book Award, there's always like the one that's like from Grey Wolf or Tin House or something, you know. But it's not. You don't really see it happen that often uh, with more than one book. So while we're discussing kind of the Pulitzer, the Pulitzer of it all. Mm-hmm. I I really loved this book. I immediately thought of Marilyn Robinson. I think we get a lot of, obviously, you've got a male character on his deathbed. Mm-hmm. You also have a lot, really, about theology and religion mm-hmm. kind of quietly. It's a little bit quieter in this book, I think, than in Marilyn Robinson's. Our main character isn't a, isn't a Unitarian <laughs> preacher. Um, but you get a lot of that. And you can tell that Paul Harding has done reading outside of maybe just fiction, but you can tell that he also maybe perhaps does a lot of religious reading. But the other author I immediately thought of was Elizabeth Strout. And I thought, I looked on the Pulitzer website and Olive Kittredge won the previous year. Uh And so I'm so curious what you think about the New England of it all, because it's, and it's not just Elizabeth, like if you go back through the Pulitzer list, it's also the shipping news, which I'm pretty sure is a New England story. Like Mm -hmm. lots of New England stories And why is that? Is that because 
in America, if these books are uniquely American in their storytelling, we're drawn to the oldest parts of our country. And so we are curious about the tales that they tell. But it seems when you look at the Pulitzer list, there's far more representation from the New England contingency than the West. There are, there are Western stories. There's right, Lonesome yeah. Dove. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the Dennis Johnson. But like, there's also, there's not a ton of Southern representation. Right. There's a, there are a few, but it feels like New England is most represented. You know, I, <laughs> I think this is going to be like, uh, possibly like a hot take, but I think that, um, I think that one of the reasons why, while it's not quite as many Southern books is because I think that well, this is gonna, but like I think sometimes like discussing racism in America kind of goes in and out of fashion for people, and mm. and I think that Southern literature frequently uh, we're there's just a, a greater awareness of racism in America mm-hmm. in American literature in the South and um and and actually whenever there are like I think about the few books that take place in the South that have been winners and finalists like uh the Underground Railroad or the yeah. Sport of Kings and stuff and they are all dealing with yeah. you know racism and then I think that books um. I think that some of the more Western stuff deals with, can sometimes deal with toxic masculinity even without even realizing it. Mm. And I think that that could be uncomfortable for some readers. Yeah. And so I think that, I think that the New England thing is a little bit more of like, it's like this, the safe America in a way sometimes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of like how it's felt to me whenever it feels like the, it's like the, the safe place to go whenever you don't, you know. Yeah. The hard scrabble, New England <laughs> landscape. And I, I don't know. I I read it and I, you know, I went to the Boston area uh-huh. this past winter. And I I loved reading this after going there because yeah. I was like, oh, I know about the North Shore. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I've been there. I can I can definitely place this. And it's such a unique landscape that I certainly do think lends itself to the literary. Like, yes, there's no denying that there's a rich literary history there. There's Mm -hmm. references in Tinker's, obviously, to Hawthorne. We've already talked about a little Mm -hmm. bit about the Scarlet Letter. But obviously, there's a rich literary history there that I think probably is due in part just to the landscape itself. Like, when you go there, there's so much to reflect on. And even when you read books like Olive Kittredge or like this one, like, the characters just feel scrappy. I don't I don't yeah. know another way to put it. It just feels like if you can survive a winter in New England, you can survive anything or, yeah. or at least that's what these authors want us to think. <laughs> I I would argue that if you can survive a southern summer, you can survive anything, but I guess yeah. we all have our Well, <laughs> we all also, have our biases. Does is that area does that does that area have like all four seasons? Yes. And See, and that's yeah, see, that's the thing is that like, that's another thing. Writers, they're like, I want all the seasons, you know, like yeah. they want. Yeah. So like, I think that's like. They almost uh, have to place a book there <laughs> in order to get to get to get it all in. Yeah. Which speaking of seasons, the natural world plays a big part in this book. And one of the mm-hmm. books we read last year for Backlist Book Club was Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Mm-hmm. And in a similar way, while I was reading this book, some of those passages, there's just really intense i think scene where howard howard's father i think this was howard howard's father has been taken i'm pretty sure it was howard and he like eases into the creek and he Mm -hmm. sits in it overnight do you remember this scene Mm -hmm. and he he wants to stay in the creek overnight and obviously that's not doable for a child and and ultimately people come to to get him but but he kind of sinks down in it and the way that he describes the silt and the trout and 
the surrounding landscape and the shadows and the trees. It all reminded me so much of Annie Dillard. And I loved Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, but that was a book. And I keep going back to your word of demanding because I think it's so true. But that was a book where I sat fully expecting to read it in a day or two. Uh And I had to reread over and over again, not because it was bad or because it was maybe in part because it was hard, but really because it was rich. Like, Mm -hmm. because I kept thinking, wait, wait, Annie, my brain, I think my brain is trained at this point to skim or to read fast. And so I really have to work hard to not do that. And a lot of these Pulitzer winners, particularly the ones dealing with the natural world, I'm catching myself like, like I'm almost shrugging off. Oh yeah, I know what a tree looks like. And then it's like, wait, Annie, but do you know how Paul Harding describes a tree? Like, like, do you know how Annie Dillard describes a creek? Like go back, reread it. Like my brain is having to be retrained, I think, while reading these books. That being said, when I think of books set in the natural world, immediately think of Pilgrim at Tinker Creek as a bookseller. I think of Overstory. Mm-hmm. Would you include Tinkers in that? I think so. Yeah, and I think that um, that's something too. So, you know, I, I do think that um, <laughs> you know, we talk about the American landscape, and I know that like we think about like 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 just like the the lands, like the people and the the everything. But I do think that like the actual landscape, like the mm-hmm. the earth itself, like I think it does play like a big part because I think that there is a I think that we feel an inherent sense of like wanting to connect to, to like our, the, to the land. And, and there's a complicated history that goes along with that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I do think that it's something that like, and I also think that maybe because this is a, a, a I don't know, in my head, I always think like this still is like a newer, a newer, like quote unquote yeah. newer, like for us. And so like, I think that there's not the history that there is in other places that like, mm-hmm. or, or whatever history was there is like not there anymore. And so I think that like, in a way like i don't know there's this like this really complicated complex feeling that we're all kind of grappling with and i I think that whether we know it or not that's something that we're doing so i think that that is i think that's part of the reason why it's considered for like an american literature i think that tinkers would be definitely that because i do think it explores a lot of things like you said the overstory Mm -hmm. i think uh what was there's a book called greenwood that came out a while back oh yeah Bark, bark skins by annie prue yeah um which was not but like you know but yeah i think a lot of these books i think yeah i think that the there's a complicated history with with um, uh, America's nature, and mm-hmm. and I think and that who, who it belongs to, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I, but I yeah. think that yeah. So I think that's an interesting thing to explore, whether we realize it or not. Okay, so I guess I'm just curious about your overall feelings. I did not know so so often when we do these Pulitzer books, either mostly it's that you have read them and I have not. So this feels <laughs> unusual because neither one of us had read it before. Yeah. And so I'm curious your overall thoughts, opinions. Are you glad you read it? Is it five stars? We hate to rate these uh, Pulitzer <laughs> winners, but but tell me your overarching thoughts. I definitely think this is a five-star read. It's so funny. I think this is a five-star read. I also think, talking about time, I think that this book actually has some really weird, small uh, connections to Swamplandia, and I will mm. explain that at some point later. <laughs> but I, but yeah, I think that I don't like you. We talked about like you know this ending is a is a beautiful ending, mm-hmm. and I same as you. I did. I I cried at the end. I was like, oh, this is. I was like, this is making me emotional. I didn't know that I would. I really didn't. Like I really liked it, but I was like, oh, is this going to move me? Uh huh. 
and it did. And we, we have discussed at length previously that <laughs> if a book and an author stick a landing, then for me, that's how I know, okay, it was excellent. But but this book was excellent throughout, but the ending still managed to surprise me, even though the whole time you know, right? Yeah. It, it, this oh. book is about a man who dies. <laughs> it's so it's so funny because like, well, whenever you, because you texted me, I wasn't quite towards, towards the end and you were like, oh, am I crying at the ending? And it's funny because I was like, oh, like this is, I, you know, I was like, I'm like, I'm, I'm, con- I'm connected to it. And it's like the last like page and a half mm-hmm. the thing like what the the ending it's something that it's just it's that time shift again that like is yeah. so perfect here because it's because that's the thing is that you know i think the the best books the best writers they teach you how to read them as you go mm. and and this book is teaching it's preparing you for what this book is how this book is going to end and yeah. when it happens you're ready but you're not like emotionally ready and so then <laughs> yeah. you're like oh the tears yeah, you're weirdly surprised by it, even mm-hmm. though the whole book you kind of maybe maybe now if you were to reread it, you would yeah. know what's coming. Also, I do ha- I do have to say this book. So I read uh, so last year's uh, National Book Award winner was The Rabbit Hutch. Yes, um, which I had mixed feelings about. Mm-hmm. This book does something very similarly in that that book basically tells you that the girl is gonna like it's like oh like this girl is basically you say so she's gonna die at the end. Okay. And this book is doing a similar thing where it's like eight days before, you know. Yes. I will just say this book, this book does what it's supposed to be doing. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like, if you've read both, I need someone to talk to me about it. So, yeah, I, I just, I finished this <sighs> and I did think to myself, why do I love a book about grief? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. why do I love a book about death? And I think it, it probably has to do with my, religious upbringing, but I don't Mm -hmm. even know if it has to do with my religious upbringing. So as, as much as it has to do with my religious adulthood, where my favorite days and moments in the church calendar, the ones that remind us that we are dust, like that, like I love Ash Wednesday. I love all Saints Sunday. Like I love Mm -hmm. being reminded that from dust we came and to dust we will return. And so any of these books that kind of deal with that and deal with, legacy or deal with longing and what happens at the end of life. All of those things are fascinating to me. I don't think I'm alone in that. Like I, I think, but I do think it's interesting that as a culture, we don't love talking about death very much. Mm -hmm. And frequently we're not quite sure we have the words for it. And so I love when an author does have the words for it and is able to beautifully encapsulate what grief looks like, what aging mm-hmm. looks like. That's another thing that I just don't think we talk about as a culture. And so I love these books where it's these older protagonists. Mm-hmm. Cause I read a lot of books with young, <laughs> you know, coming of age stories. And yeah. I love those. I really do love those, but we are all just like we all came of age. We are all going to die. Mm-hmm. And so I want to read books that show me how, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is that weird? No. I don't know. I totally, <laughs> also, I do have to, a very quick question, which, you know, you don't see, so you don't have this problem. I typically, um, if you've listened, if you've listened to me before on here, I don't typically like books about men. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. And so like I was reading, and that's the thing that I think threw me the most was I was like, wow, there's like just a bunch of men. And yes, it's, I'm in- and it really is just a bunch of men. Like there's yeah. a couple of women who play very minor roles and they're mm-hmm. interesting. They don't feel yeah. one note. They no, feel interesting. Yeah. I could read a book about them. I actually think mm-hmm. if he wanted to, if he wanted to do a companion novel, oh, like a about, like a 
like a quartet type Gilead thing. Yes. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If he wanted to go back and write about uh, Howard's wife in particular, um, I would be very interested in that. But you're right. This is a book about men and masculinity. Yeah. I'm so, yeah. I am surprised you liked it. <laughs> I know. I know. Me too. <laughs> Oh, well, Hunter, this has been a delight. We are going to do this again in August, and we've already picked our book. Do you want to tell the name of it? Did we pick the short story collection? Yes, we did. Yes, okay. <laughs> We're doing um, Interpreter of Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri. I'm showing it even though you can't see it. <laughs> it is, I think this is, if you don't, if you're kind of hesitant about short story collections, I think this is actually a really good one because I think that they all feel they feel complete enough to where you, you don't, you don't feel like you're just like left questioning. Like you, you have questions, but you're not feeling kind of left, whatever. But yeah, interpretive maladies, uh, not to be mistaken for the emperor of maladies, which was a nonfiction Pulitzer winner, I think. Oh, that's right. Okay. Interpreter of maladies. I'm excited about this one because I've never read her before. Mm -hmm. And it's been a long time since you and I have talked about a short story collection. That's true. And also for anyone who, uh, is interested is interested in reading her in the meantime you should read her book uh the lowland which i thought was beautiful wonderful so we will do this again in august thank you hunter i can't wait yay This week, what I'm reading is brought to you by the 102nd Annual Rose Show and Festival here in Thomasville, Georgia. Come visit us for the weekend of April 28th through 29th and experience the flowers, fun, food, and shopping in beautiful Thomasville. Plan your visit at thomasvillega.com. This coming weekend, my parents are coming to the store with my aunt and uncle, and we are going to decorate the store windows for the annual window display contest. This is one of my favorite parts of Rose Show and Festival. If you come to Thomasville the Friday, Saturday, or Sunday of Rose Show, you can walk the brick streets on Broad and on Jackson, and you can see all of the beautiful rose-inspired window displays by our fellow merchants and shop owners. It is so fun to see creativity come to life, and I love that Rose Show is now now, not just these beautiful roses and orchids that are that are in these tents throughout downtown. It's also just in the. It's almost it's almost in the air and it's in the shops. It just becomes an c- entire community event, and I think the window display contest adds a lot to that. Obviously, we would love if you voted for us, but that's not what this is about. This is about the fact that you can come to Thomasville and you can truly window shop. You can browse and see the creativity and the beauty our city has to our- offer, and the wonderful genius minds who run and design our fellow businesses, and so please come to downtown Thomasville and enjoy the gorgeous window displays that are prepared for you during Rosha weekend. This week, I'm listening to Happy Place by Emily Henry. Hunter, what are you reading? I'm reading Rouge by Mona Awad. Thank you again to our sponsor, the 102nd Annual Rose Show and Festival here in Thomasville, Georgia. Plan your upcoming visit at thomasvillega.com. From the Front Porch is a weekly podcast production of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in Thomasville, Georgia. You can follow The Bookshelf's daily happenings on Instagram at bookshelfteville, and all the books from today's episode can be purchased online through our store website, bookshelfthomasville.com. A full transcript of today's episode can be found at fromthefrontporchpodcast.com. Special thanks to Studio D Podcast Production for production of From the Front Porch and for our theme music, which sets the perfect warm and friendly tone for our Thursday conversations. Our executive producers of today's episode are Donna Hetchler, Cami Tidwell, Chantal C., Kate O'Connell, Nicole Marcy, Wendy Jenkins, 
Lori Johnson. Thank you all for your support of From the Front Porch. If you'd like to support From the Front Porch, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for From the Front Porch, scroll down until you see write a review and tell us what you think. Or if you're so inclined, you can support us over on Patreon, where we have three levels of support, Front Porch Friends, Book Club Companions, and Bookshelf Benefactors. Each level has an amazing number of benefits like bonus content, access to live events, discounts, and giveaways. Just go to patreon.com forward slash from the front porch. We're so grateful for you and we look forward to meeting back here next week.